Welcome to the Legend of the Death Race podcast. I'm your host, Tony Matisse, and every week we share legends from past death racers on the courage, power, and wisdom it takes to conquer life's obstacles. All of us death racers aspire to inspire you to create a life past your limits. Today's legend follows the stories of death racers Anthony Sinopoli and Clay Speakman, who competed in one death race. Anthony and Clay, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Great to be here. Super, super stoked to have you guys. I'm super stoked to try this, having two people on the show at once. So why don't we start with Anthony? Tell us where you're from. Tell us about your occupation, your athletic background, how old you are um, now and when you did the death race uh, and where you're from. And then we'll jump over to Clay and get his background. Yeah, so uh, I'm a New York native. I grew up, went to college, and have worked in the New York and Pennsylvania area working a global supply chain for about the past five years or so. Um, my background is uh, athletically mostly football, baseball. is kind of a jock in high school, but not a very good athletic person. I was always a starter, but never impressed anybody. So um pretty athletic, picking things up. And, you know, I played racquetball throughout college, which is, you know, kind of a fun sport, but not really anything. And, you know, by the time I went into, uh, you know, full-time career, it was just, what was I going to do? And I ended up finding Spartan pretty early on. So that, that was kind of my path to how I got here. Before we get to Clay, when did you find Spartan? I found it in, uh, my first race was the Vermont, uh, Beast 2013. Okay, sounds good. Pretty early days. All right, Clay, how about you? Uh, so I grew up in Louisiana, spent some time in New Mexico, uh, and then moved to New York about 10 years ago. Um, I, uh, I own a technology company, so uh, I founded that in the uh, sort of financial space. Uh, so I'm one of the, like, the working CEOs uh, you know, the rare group of, of death race and Spartan people that, that has a real like, you know, CEO job and doesn't get to work in the, um, you know, the full fitness industry, like a lot of the people I know who are really into it. But, um, you know, for me, I grew up um, playing tennis. So I was always uh, an athlete. But like the, the whole like run, jump, uh, push things over, pick things up, strong guy thing was just not my thing. Um, growing up and uh, I got into Spartan in 2015 because some people I was at a gym with wanted to go like I my wife was more excited about it than I was I was just sort of tagging along but you know I started running up the mountain at Tuxedo and there's just something clicked like my, like I was born to to do that i think we all are in a sense it's our, that primal we, nature right it brings yeah. it out of us like we were made to conquer the earth we were made to run up mountains run down mountains throw things over things we were made to go over the walls we were made to throw spears like it just connected and and it woke something up that said like you're you're stronger than you think you are and like this is the playground to get strong so it just it was like all right what's the next hardest race what's the next hardest race and then two years later i was I did a couple of gogies, and then I was like, well, the death race is the next hardest race, so I got to sign up. Um, and that's what took me there. You know, that's awesome. And I love how, you know, finding these events, you, you, you mentioned a playground, and uh, it's like we kind of forgot 
what it's like to play, you know, as we got older and became adults and we forgot what it is. And, and that's exactly what I think Spartan and Death Race and all of this is. It's like this big adult playground that gives us an opportunity to do the things that, like you said, we're meant to do. So I'm curious, how did you two guys meet? And, you know, how did that transpire into this conversation that we're having now? So so tell me a little bit about that. I, I can I can uh, comment on that one. It's uh, me and Clay first met at Boston. There was uh, Rob Barger, who's been on the show. He put together this nonsensical event, and it was uh, he called it the quad, which was a Hurricane Heat 12, a double sprint into a Hurricane Heat four hour consecutive. Um, you had to have all your stuff. Uh, at least hit your car because you could go back between events if you had enough time. But we uh, we ended up meeting um, at that event and it was the worst and most awful 28 hours of my life. It was, you know, like 40 degrees out at the best. It was damn near below freezing for most of it. And we were called the trash bag crew. It was raining. <laughs> it, was raining. it was raining so bad. And uh we we ended up i think it was we did the full 12 hour clay you, did you make it to the four hour i mean we were soaked and wet uh, i did the two sprints and then uh, a couple i was up there with some friends and they were like let's just go home <laughs> like, it's not even a real event let's just go home it's not even like sanctioned thing it was rob barger just trying to decide like this would be cool if some people tried this so we were like, all right, that was fun. It was, you know, we made it like, you know, 20, 22 or the whatever. And we were like, let's just go. Um, so we, so we went back, but yeah, it was, it was definitely, uh, it was a great event. Good people as these events always draw and you learn great things about people when you're doing things that really suck. You really do. <laughs> There's a lot of bonding that happens in the suck. Yeah. So, so you guys met at a Spartan race and then I guess, when did you guys decide, Hey, we're going to do a death race and you know do it together well did we you decide that you were going to do it together no we didn't we weren't partners so this was this was the partner death race uh the the 2019 death race so this is where um joe just had this idea uh, sort of at the last minute that hey everybody's going to have a partner and you're going to be partnered up um and i think anthony already had his his partner uh my partner got injured so i had to get like a last minute sub partner as uh, a guy that I did an agogi with, so he was uh, Stephen Blair from Scotland, a big six five, two hundred and forty pound beast. Oh man, <laughs> of a man, yeah, he was like the jujitsu champion of Scotland when he was like twenty five, thirty years old. But anyway, uh, but no, it, you know what? What happened is we we did a lot of stuff with our partners in the first like six hours of the death race. We were sort of tied to our partners, and then then they threw out the whole partner plan. Then there was no partners anymore. And, and partners didn't matter, and everybody sort of just figured it out. But then you start to realize as, as you're going through different modules, you start to gravitate towards people that, that think like you or that sort of have common strategy. And, and the, the people who have common strategies and common sort of you know, personalities start to sort of stick together. And, and eventually, about halfway through the death race, it was Anthony, me, and probably six or seven other people that sort of formed our own little partnership groups and we're helping each other. And, and so, so that's sort of where we reconnected on all that. 
That sounds pretty awesome. So, um, before we dive further into the death race, uh, how did you guys discover the death race? So you, you'd known about Spartan and everything, but how did you find out about it? Decide to sign up for it. So for me, I was actually at my first race and, uh, I was 11 and a half, almost 12 hours took me to get through the first beast I ever did. I, it's like, how, how long could a t- 13 uh, mile race take one mile an hour? I, I can't imagine. I was so destroyed, but I'll never forget <laughs> going up uh, what is now called uh, the Death March, and we're going up, and that was actually the start of the race that year. It was you started and you immediately went up, and then you actually came directly back down, and it was like a three-mile loop, and they had like this turnoff point that said, you can quit here. That was like Joe's thing. Um, and this is before they released maps. This is before they did anything. And I'll never forget my wife just is like, you don't know what you're getting into. Cause I did the Sunday race and, uh, I, I was doing the Sunday race. She did the Saturday and she's just laughing. Like you have no idea. Um, but <laughs> so nice, <laughs> but as we're going up, uh, the death March, uh, we hit about the, uh, three quarter of the waypoint, And we see these two guys walking in death race shirts, like, who the hell are these people? And they come out of the woods and not on the trail and not on anything. And I believe it was that was, the, that was the team death race. I think. Yeah. Yeah. There was two of them. And one guy with a big beard, I'll never forget it. He was swatting at flies that weren't there at the top of the race. And we just thought like the wind is like 40 miles an hour up here. There is no flies. It's 30 degrees out. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that was my first exposure to the death race. And we ended up doing a little bit of research on it. And for the first few years, you're like, hell no, I will never do this race. And then you do the race. I mean, like, it's just how the progression was goes. There, was, there, was there a trigger or something that flipped that switch and made you go from no to yes? It was uh, it was a small progression. It was, all right, I'm going to do my trifecta next year. Because my first race was the Beast at Killingtons, one of the hardest ones they offer. And then... The next year was like, all right, let's try an ultra. Uh, let's do a Hurricane Heat 12 and 4. All right. And then next year was the quad. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, you're like, man, these these are easy. These are not easy, but they're not there. There's no risk of failing as far as if uh, I was healthy. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of walk into it. And my uh, partner had posted a, you know, Andy Blair, he, he posted this um, Facebook post and was like, I'm looking for a partner. I can't find one who's up there. And it was like this Christmas Boxing Day gift. It was like, uh, I'll do it with you. And I didn't ask my wife at the time. And, you know, she was not happy. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it ended up working out really well. I mean, from start to finish, it was, you know, almost six years before uh, first seeing death racers on the course to actually joining them. That's pretty cool. And so how, how about you, Clay? How did you uh, find out about this thing? Well, I mean, my progression was uh, the Spartan Sprint, you know, in Tuxedo in 2015, sort of the awakening of uh, this feels like, you know, a, a version of me that I've always wanted that never knew was there. And then it, it was literally just the chain of of what's the next hardest race. It was it was followed by the Super, then it was followed by the Beast, then it was followed by the Ultra, and then it was the hurricane. The only thing I did out of order was the hurricane 12 hour before I did the four hour. Um, <laughs> nice. And then, and then the Yagogi and the Yagogi in Iceland was at that point is the hardest thing I'd ever done. Uh, I barely made it through. I hit my breaking point. I was hallucinating. Um, I, it was pretty I, cold at that one. Yeah. 
it was really cold. Uh, it was it was really difficult challenge, and you know, I, I got delusional a couple times. I, I had told myself I was quitting. I, I actually quit, but nobody knew I quit. And then, by some miracle, I got woken back up. And Rob Barger lied to me, and um, and Mark Peterson. They told me that that I had plenty of time to go out and finish what I was supposed to do because they extended some deadline, which was not true. And they had. The weather was great, which was not true. So I believed them. I got up, got dressed, and went back out and just got my ass kicked. But <laughs> but I was like, you know, I woke me up. I'm like, no, I can't finish this, and I caught back up. So, you know, I was thinking, like, for me, you know, I want to find that next event that's going to really push my limits, that I can't just mail it in, that I can't just coast along. Um, and after I did that, Agogi, you know, I, I was able to finish, and I said, okay, what's the next hardest thing? Uh, and that's why I decided I'm going to do a death race because that's the next hardest thing. And I want to push that comfort zone. I want to push that limit. Um, it's also one of those iconic things that you want to, you want to have on your resume. Um, and it's, it, to me, it was just the ultimate proving ground that, you know, I could do anything if I work hard enough, maybe it'll take me several events. Maybe I'll be lucky enough that it'll take one, but I'm going to do it until I can finish it. Hell yeah. So you guys competed in the 2019 death race. Um, what was the reason, like, why you wanted to do this? Let's start with Clay. What did? What was your reason why? Um, you know, it, it's a combination of two things. One is to, to find where that limit was of my um, capability and comfort zone. Um, and two was to, to prove that, you know, I could do one of the hardest things. And I think I thought about that in future tense. I wanted to be able to look back and say, you know, I did one of the hardest things that can be done. And that's a testament that anybody can do that. Because where I was 10 years before that was was not even in the conversation that I could do something like that. I didn't believe that I was strong enough to do anything like that. Um, and then to go from not believing you're strong enough to do anything, I don't have what it takes, I'm not, I'm not that guy, I wasn't born that way. Um, and then to go finish the death race is a proof that you can transform yourself if you just challenge yourself enough. And, and when you say you wanted to prove it, you wanted to prove it to yourself. Yeah, that's I that's, want to prove that's... it to myself. So then I could say to other people, too, that anybody can do it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just a cycle of challenging yourself, scaring yourself, rising to the occasion. And, and yeah, it's a lot of hard work. You can't just show up. You can't just say, I really want to do this and show up. And I, right. I worked, you know, I trained six months exclusively for the death race. And that's after I had done two Agogis and, and 30 Spartan races, which I had to train for every one of those too. So it, there is work involved and there's a process and you, you can't jump from step one to step 20, but you can get there. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to do the work. Um, and uh, like you said, anyone can do this. And I'm hoping that this podcast helps more people out there that are maybe thinking about it, realize that anyone can, because we've had all kinds of different people from all different walks of life on it. So yeah, I think that's very true. And I hope that, you know, these stories are helping people realize that. So Anthony, tell us what was your why? Uh, there's two big factors that play into that. The, the death race is the premier OCR race, um, bar none. I mean, if you're anybody who's anybody in the OCR world, you've heard of the death race, it's it's hollowed ground to go race that race. I mean, you are doing things that, in my eyes, you know, some very big names, Amelia Boone, Clay Ack, I mean, you just look at it and it just, 
it, it to me was such an important race to do to put on that you know bucket list it's um in my eyes was a culmination of a body of work um it's been it's been a long time i mean i was not in any particularly good shape before i started doing ocr um i was not a runner i was not i hated running i hated climbing mountains yeah and I thought like elevation was stupid and, and quite honestly, I look at it now and I'd rather go up a mountain than down it. Um, it's crazy, isn't it? It's, um, and it's, I'm almost as fast at going up as I am down when you look at a long race. Um, and then the other part of it is, uh, from a mental standpoint, where's the limit? Um, I've done, you know, the quad was about as long as I'd done, uh, up to that. And that was challenging physically, but mentally I was still in the game. Um, I never felt like I was too off my uh, off my rocker. I wasn't really thinking things through or be able to make the right decision at any given time or be tricked. And uh, when you look at that long term endurance, three days, you see the sunset go down a third time. You just <laughs> your eyes begin to cross on the things you'd be able. And I feel bad for the people around me because my headlight broke at the death race and it was flashing SOS. Oh man! All night for hours, <laughs> and they somebody ended up giving me a headlamp, but uh, just to stop it. And uh, but no, it, it was that point where you know you're going into that second night, and I'll never forget sitting down and falling asleep in for two seconds and getting back up and keep going. I mean, the mental limit I just could not comprehend going into that race, the requirement of it, and and I found that. But that I mean, that was my why. Very yeah, good wise. I mean, finding we, your limits and go ahead. Go ahead, Clay. Yeah, we got to, this is skipping ahead a little bit, Anthony, we got to go ahead and, and spill some of the beans on some of the sleep hacks that we got. Because I think Anthony and I and a few other guys maybe probably broke the record for the most sleep ever at a death race. Is that um, right? Because I don't, yeah. I mean, I got, I got some sleep at my very first death race, like a couple minutes on the trail. I literally would just lay on the middle of the trail and fall asleep for like two minutes and then get up and you know i'd literally set my like iphone alarm for like two minutes and be like okay there were some parts of this that was before we sort of hooked up with anthony but there were there was a crew of a and i won't spill names I, i'll take ownership for this it's fine uh, <laughs> again i don't think the death race leaders um uh, take any offense to people figuring out ways to to hack the death race as long as you don't get caught right but there was there, there were groups of us who were strategically placing ourselves in different positions where we were uh, taking little naps because we did we did smarter work and figured out ways to sort of be in two places at one time. Uh, I, won't, I don't want to spill it for everybody who's going to do this event in future cases. But if you have to go up the mountain uh, 10 different times to, to get 10 different riddles off of of pieces of paper that are up the mountain, well, if you figure out a way that you can go all the way up the mountain three times and get all 10 pieces instead of 10 times, well, you do save yourself seven trips, which is enough time to get some nice uh, breaks in for naps and eating food and, and such. So there are ways to hack, you know, and, and give yourself a better chance of being able to survive this because, yeah, 76 hours, I think we'd count it, without any sleep at all. If, if you're still functioning, you're not functioning well. And you're not making good decisions. And when Joe shows up and says, let's see how fast everybody can do burpees. And there's 15 sets of eyes watching everybody to see who's strong and who's weak. 
you have to be able to, to perform at a high level. And when that's 50 hours in with no sleep, if you didn't hack it, you didn't steal away five minutes, three minutes, two minutes here and there, you're just not going to perform well. That's just biology. It's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty awesome way to hack it. Go ahead, Anthony. I think you're saying. No, something. yeah. I just. I want to say I probably got 20 minutes of sleep a day, and maybe a little bit more depending on the event. And uh, you know, it was the small things. It was all right. Everybody's taking a break to grab food. I ate on the trail, and when everybody stopped for that 10 minutes to grab food, I, I was out. Like <laughs> headlight flashing, SOS out, and. Um, you know, there were points where we were ahead on the race. I knew I was in a good place and I found a place out of the way and I needed 15 minutes to myself because that 15 minutes paid dividends at the end of the race when we were going from 3 p.m. Uh, the second to last day to 8 a.m. the last day of just lapping the course that we had been given, which was up and down Joe's mountain. I mean, that is 800 feet of gain. It's about a mile up, mile down. And that 15 minutes probably gave me an extra lap. And Clay was actually ahead of me at one point. I take a 15 minute nap and all of a sudden me and my trekking sticks have finally caught him. And we end up taking the last two laps together. It was, it was a turning point for me to just get a touch of sleep and think square. Whereas you look at people around you and man, they were losing it. Like just not thinking straight, making bad decisions. It happens oh. fast. The mental deterioration is extreme when you have that many hours without sleep. And yeah, so yeah. it's definitely I good mean, that I, you guys figured that out. I I commend you because I never really, I, like I said, the one time I really slept other than that, not much. Well, you know, again, if if you if you do the work and you do well, in the times that it matters, you you earn the possibility that there's a little space here and there to take care of yourself, right? It, it's hard when you get behind. If if you're behind, you you it's exponential, you know, punishment. It's exponentially hard to catch back up. If you stay in the in the front group by working hard in the beginning, you you learn that you get a little bit of sort of opportunities here and there to have some luxuries that a lot of other people don't. Now, you still have to pick your your time, right? Um, you know, you, you, you don't skirt the rules when there's five sets of eyes on you, right? Right. But when you've had the luxury of performing well and all the attention is on somebody else or another group, you take every second of it to sort of pace yourself and, and give yourself some a little bit of nourishment. You give yourself a little bit extra foot care. You give yourself a little bit of extra nutrition. You get that 30 second shut eye that makes all the difference and some people don't do it they don't know how to do it they're afraid to do it they think oh we're not allowed to they ask mm -hmm. permission would never ask permission right yeah, yeah. Um, that's the worst thing you can do yeah right? that is the worst just, thing you can do <laughs> yeah just do it and these events are designed to, to make people think out of the box like this this is not a spartan race there's not a course there's no rules there's no rule book the, the leaders are intentionally designing uh, controlled chaos to see how people react. How will you do? How will you react? How smart can you be in navigating your own survival here without causing attention to yourself? There's not a rule that says if you break a rule, you're out of the race. Right. If, if you get caught breaking a rule, they'll just give you more attention. If you can handle the extra attention, you may decide it's worth breaking the rule. 
Absolutely. You're not, you're never out of the race. They're just going to give you more work to do. And at some point you're going to decide it's too much and you can't handle it. Now, so you mentioned that if you're able to get yourself ahead and to be performing well, that then you're able to gain some of these advantages, right? But to get there, it requires something and that's training. And so how did you guys train to get yourselves to that point where you were able to earn yourself some of these luxuries because you were able to get ahead or into a good position where you had some of these extra seconds to, to, to go do something like take a nap or whatever. How did you guys train for this race? Uh, my training, uh, you know, Clay, I'll take the lead on this one, but my, my training was primarily a, a calisthenic workout. I never touched anything really over 40 pounds. And, um, a lot of people will say, well, doing a thousand sit-ups does not make you a stronger core workout. Well, it does make you stronger mentally that your core can be tired and continue to progress forward. Um, I, I was a big proponent of hiding miles on rocks. So uh, my neighbors must think I'm clinically insane. I would have a pack on with 40 pounds in it and go mow the lawn. Um, <laughs> I would do that every time I had to go do a, a lawn. I mean, I would go walk down trails and just make yourself uncomfortable with what your training is and, you know, I also was a big proponent of training heart rate. So you cannot sustain 160 beat per minute heart rate for three days. It's just not feasible. It will not happen. So, you know, when I looked at that, I, you know, I understood from my training and all the work on it is my comfortable place is 140 beats a minute or lower. If I can keep it there, I can do it for as long as I want, as long as I'm properly fed. So with that understanding, I knew when I was starting to bonk out and had to get some food and take my heart rate down and take the pace out mm -hmm. um, and vice versa or when I'm dogging it and need to move forward. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it was a lot of high rep stuff and it was a lot of hiding miles as many places as I can sitting at a desk at work with the, the pack. I mean, I did it. It's embarrassing, but I, you know, it's just some of those small things where, you know, corporate life, you can't always be working out every day. Um, three times a day like I'd like, so toss a pack on, go type on a keyboard and answer some emails. It, it was things like that I feel like made all the difference at the race. Yeah, absolutely, especially when you're in that kind of uh, work environment and stuff. It's like you got to find ways because you're working a lot of hours and there's not enough time to really train for something like this when you're working that much. So you do have to find ways to train at work. And I, I think a lot of people have done stuff like that. I know, you know, Amelia Boone, you mentioned earlier, she did squats during her conference calls to train. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> how, how about you, Clay? I mean, it, everybody has to have a baseline fitness level to do a race like this. You just can't get around that. If you're not used to running uh, or, you know, carrying weight or lifting things or, or chopping wood, because that's something everybody's got to do a lot of. Although I wasn't great at chopping wood, so I just did what I could when I had to. And as soon as there were opportunities to do other things i just volunteered for those other things right so you know i masked my weakness you know just fine but you have to have that basic level of, of fitness to be able to survive but to me you know there there are two things i focused on one is just building upper body strength which was half to to get the strength and half for the discipline to do it so 100 push-ups a day became 200 became 300 400 500 that was sort of my step up um, because I was, I was okay to run. I was a, a decent runner, pretty good runner, pretty good speed. So I knew I could do that. So I just had to work on the area of my fitness that wasn't up to par, right? Where was my biggest weakness? And I had to work on that because at some points you can't fake 
being able to carry heavy things. You can't fake not having enough arm strength. Uh, it will hurt you in an event like this. And yeah, you might have a teammate who helps you out and covers your weakness, but I want to be the guy who helps other people out and covers their weakness. I don't want to be the guy that has to get my own weakness covered because you don't know when that's going to end your race or not. And there were plenty of death racers who, because themselves and their partner didn't have the, the strength they needed, fell way behind and it became really difficult for them to, to pass the race. And you just can't give yourself that opening. But what Anthony said, I think, is the most important thing is you have to be you have to work on you, your ability to be comfortable being uncomfortable, like mowing the yard sucks, but mowing it with a a 40 pound weight pack just sucks worse. Right. You have to just do that every chance you get is I'm going to be uncomfortable on purpose so that I can get used to being uncomfortable all the time. And the death race, you're just uncomfortable all the time. And as soon as your mind says, I don't want to do this, this sucks you're toast. You have to look at it as, of course, I want to do this. It sucks. And yes. I love, it. I'm here because it sucks. We would say all the time, this, this, they, the, the stupidest stuff would, and by stupid, I mean, with all respect, like the hardest, most uncomfortable stuff would get assigned to us. And, and some people would say, Oh, like, seriously, or like, I'm not going to do that shit. Or I can't believe that. And we would, you know, those of us would say it's the motherfucking death race. Like, yes. it's, it, of course we want to yes. do this. It's the motherfucking death race. This is why we came here. That's what you we signed up for. That's what you, that's what you signed we, up for. That's what you paid for, you know? <laughs> so that's the mentality you have to have. The more it sucks, the more you want to do it, right? Because you're, you're comfortable being uncomfortable. You signed up to be uncomfortable. So bring it on. It'd be a letdown if, if they didn't tell you to do something ridiculous. So, you know, some people complain mentally and that's where they're toast. You're toast if you, if you complain in the first hour or in the 65th hour. It doesn't matter. You just can't break. You have to always welcome being uncomfortable. And that to me is the most important part of training. Um, and you can do it in any way that makes you uncomfortable. You don't Absolutely. even need weights. You don't even need weights to do it. Oh, there's so many ways you can make yourself uncomfortable. It's it's not that hard. But it, it's important. And you're you gotta reprogram your brain to think that those uncomfortable things are fun. Yeah. And like you know, take, no, this is great. I'm gonna do this. This is gonna make me you take, think about the take, positives. Uh, yeah. Take you know, cold like, showers every day. That's the easiest way to, to just get comfortable getting uncomfortable. It sucks. Oh, yeah. yeah, but you know what? When you're thrown into Joe's pond a couple times, you know, you're like, Hey, I I get in cold showers colder than this all the time. So you I, just walk yeah. in, you don't care. You walk in, you be like, I know how to handle this. It's fine. Other people are complaining. Other people are tensing up. Other people's heart rate's shooting through the roof, and you're comfortable. And that makes all the difference in a race like this. It really does. So you guys got used to being uncomfortable, and you trained really well. Um, going into the race, did you guys have any fears, either of you? Any fears going into this race? Yeah, my, my biggest fear was the... Uh, inevitable injury that would occur during this race. Um, it was all about trying to minimize, you know, things that I can't control, um, like rolling an ankle or straining a shoulder. I, my biggest thing was I didn't want to get taken out because of tripping on a stone that just flipped over. I mean, that to me would be just devastating that, you know, it, it, your body is perfectly in shape and I got a rolled ankle that, is broken and I cannot proceed forward or I I drop and break my arm or all these are real possibilities. And, uh, I think my wife put it best when she's just like, I don't want to hear from you for the next 72 hours in any way, shape or form, go get it done. 
I mean, yeah, that's like the best thing because you don't you don't want anyone to hear from you until that race is over. <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah, my my fear was more about whether I would come back after the event or during the event and and regret that I didn't do something harder or better or stick with it. Like I I was just thinking in the future tense of, you know, the worst fear I had was that after the race I would regret um, not finishing it because of a, a decision that I made, like that, that I decided to quit or I didn't give it all, or I didn't go, I actually, you know, I, I didn't have any notion of whether I'd finish or not. But the most important thing to me was whether I found my breaking point, whether I pushed it as hard as I could, that was going to be success no matter what, no matter where that was or when that happened. If I knew, you know what, I'd never been to a place that hard, that deep inside of me. If I got there, whether it meant I finished or not, that was my success. So my fear was that I that I would not get to that point and then regret that I didn't take it further. That, that's a pretty big fear. It's like almost the fear of, you know, you failing yourself, essentially, and you didn't want to fail yourself to achieve this goal. Um, and so... You guys go to the death race, and let's let's let dive into this race. Um, paint me a picture, like kind of what's what's the scene like the first uh, the first day. Uh, let, let me get this one because I want to talk about the parking. All right. Okay. So th- this, you know, everything is controlled chaos, and you you got to know this going in. Everything is a double message. Everything is is gonna almost you're gonna fail no matter what you do, and and it's all part of how you react to it. So they tell us there is parking on site, right? And here's where you park. And you can also walk, right? So people start showing up in their cars. And and number one rule of death race, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of number one rules. But one rule of any hurricane heat or any death race is if they tell you that you can show up between like 11 and noon, don't be the first one to show up because you're going to have an extra hour of work. Your race is actually an an hour longer than everybody else's. It's probably going to suck, right? You know, but don't be the last one either, right? You know, don't be the first one. Don't be the last one. Be somewhere comfortably in the middle, which is also a rule for like the entire race, unless yes. there's a very specific like six people get to do this, whatever. You know, don't draw attention. So, you know, we do we play it right. We show up like 20 minutes before noon, which is like the sweet spot of like not too early, not too late. And there's a bunch of cars parked and we, we come in and they tell you park in reverse alphabetical order of the state on your license plate right so we're (laughs) like okay that's a little uh, i'm not sure okay all right so there's all these cars parked well every car that comes in the order shifts of all the cars because now there's another car out of order so every car that's out of order they're yelling at the people who've already parked to go get back in their cars and go reorder. well the, the entire lot doesn't even fit the number of cars that we have so it's not even possible to probably park all the cars and everybody's having to do like planks, holding a plank with their gear on until we get this order right. Basically, the, the order is impossible. It doesn't matter where you park. It's all wrong. Everybody's getting punished. And that's basically the chaos of death race. So it, the first just registration, we, we all failed. That's just sort of a given. <laughs> I love it. I, I, I stuck my head in a car with Andrew. And pretended to fuddle with something in a car for about 20 minutes to prevent the plank. Because he just watched people doing burpees and everything. I was like, nope, I'm hiding. Bye. <laughs> Sorry, Don. Not yet. <laughs> the race hasn't started yet. I'm not falling for this. 
Yeah, I pretended to be organizing cars in reverse alphabetical order uh, and helping the, you know, as helping the team try to figure it out, knowing that it was completely useless what we were doing. Mm -hmm. But it was better than planking with my gear on. So yeah, absolutely. Be, be busy, be doing something until somebody makes you do something else. Don't be standing around with the herd just yes. following following orders. As long as you look busy, you're usually in a good spot. <laughs> they were throwing people's gear into a big they wanted a pyramid. They wanted it like eight feet. And you're just you're seeing gear right off the bat just dispersed everywhere. It was oh, man, it's the worst. Just complete chaos and people's stuff is already broke. Oh, was, the race hasn't even started. Yeah, and that's, and the, Don, and that's uh, the death race, right? <laughs> and Don starts coming around offering a thousand dollars to anybody who wants to quit, you know, <laughs> uh, right off the bat before we even register. But registration was good. Uh, we were with our partners at that point. We got our bibs. They took our photos. Um, and I can't even remember the first thing. I think we went into the to the fields and we did like PT with our partners and did all sorts of like. So what they did was right off the bat, and this is where they're screwing with people, they made you take your finisher's hoodie and T-shirt with you. And I was part of the idiot crew that threw it in the back of their cars right off the bat. So when this is all going on, we're like, let's just dump our finisher's hoodies and T-shirts and not carry it around the whole race. Well, Don picked up wind of this, and then that was – they immediately started splitting up teams. They immediately told us – Grab your axe, go in the woods. I want 10 pieces of wood from each of you. And if you're the last person, you're out. I mean, you're not 15 minutes into the start of the race. And they're already starting to find the people that are willing to push the limits and, you know, not. I mean, fortunately, me and my partner were both decided to do that. So we were able to be considered to be together. But, I mean, there were teams that were broken up from minute 15 on. I mean, it was... Just in there were people getting gear checked blindfolded. I was watching this happen. Turned out, <laughs> throw your hoodie in the back of a truck because that was a way better than what we were watching going on because we just had like an hour of sitting in the woods cutting wood because we were like, there's no way they're going to cut us already. Right, right. Yeah, they're not going to do that. They want you to have at least somewhat of an experience. Yeah, and that's that's part of the mental aspect of it is – you're going to get all sorts of chaos thrown at you, all sorts of threats, all sorts of counter uh, instructions. One crypte is going to be telling you one thing, another is going to contradict and tell the other thing. And you can either do two things. You can either stay calm and just keep working, or you can freak out and like totally like buy into the chaos. The people who freak out and buy into the chaos they, they mentally exhaust themselves, they physically exhaust themselves, and they've got nothing left after a day of that. Uh, the people who just sort of say, okay, and then just keep doing what they're doing, they'll be much better. Um, it, it's a controlled chaos. You have to see behind it that they're just trying to get a reaction out of you. Yeah. yeah. As long as you keep your cool, you keep moving, you keep doing your thing, um, you know, you're not going to be removed from the race. You have to sort of... Um, you don't. You got to filter the noise. You got to filter the chaos because they're trying to do it on purpose, and it's part of the mental aspect of the game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so let's dive into some of like the fun tasks. Um, I like to ask this question a lot. What is one of the more stupid or interesting things that they made you do during this, you know, three-day race? For me, it's by far. We were uh, we were midway through the Denali Challenge or one of the the start of it. 
and they they were like, all right, pick an item, take it up to the top. And there was a kayak that we had a group of four and a very, very strong group of four guys. And we just look at it. And this is where mental capacity, where if you're talking with people that maybe weren't the smartest people to begin with, and then they start pulling out 70 hours worth of sleep. Now they're making really, really bad decisions. Their bank (laughs) was just small to begin with. And, we get we start doing this uh, kayak pull up, and one of the guys is like, "We'll just put it on our shoulders. We'll carry it up the mountain." And I'm like, "God, that is not good. Let's let's get a stick. Let's lash it to it. Let's carry it like we're carrying a a Roman emperor. Like, mm-hmm. let's do this." And they're like, "No, we got to do." It. We didn't make it a hundred yards up the mountain before everybody's oh. chopping <laughs> trees down, and now they're chopping trees down and not even like cutting branches because they're just not thinking straight. And <laughs> we we end up getting it up it was, there. And it I, was like a oh. thousand pound kayak. Now people think a kayak. Oh, with four people should be able to carry. It. This kayak was like a concrete kayak. I think it's filled with concrete or something. It was it was massively heavy. It was <laughs> full of water is what it was. And so yeah. when you're trying to carry it up, it's sloshing around. I mean, I mean the only fun part about it was we got to ride it down the mountain. So oh, that's fun. You put it on the stairs where like it would match, and there's a video of it of just. It was me and one other guy. We just decided, all right, let's get in it. Let's write it down. I, I fought gravity all the way up. Let's get the advantage on the way down. And <laughs> so we ended up riding it down. I mean, not very far, but man, it was, it was just stupid. Like, why am I taking a kayak to the top of a mountain where there isn't even really a creek or anything? I mean, it's just, what are we doing right now? It's, it's dumb. <laughs> and it's filled with water. Why? Because oh, it's man. heavier. It's, it's harder. Right, that right. No, that's great. That's great. I want to, so one of the more interesting challenges we had uh, was a nighttime challenge uh, where there we we all went on a long hike up to one of the uh, the cabins up there and at the cabin uh, there was uh, a little table with two red solo cups and what they explained is they were gonna lift up the red solo cup uh, and there's a, a set of Legos that had been built into uh, a design. And we would have like 30 seconds to look at the set of Legos. And then we had to hike up to Shrek's cabin uh, and re- and build an exact replica. Of oh, that. That's a classic from the that's 2009 what? death race. Yeah. And the theme of, of the 2019 death race was the greatest hits, the journey. Right. So they were actually pulling all of some of the like more favorite modules that they had done before. Mm-hmm. So this I think everything that was done was except for Denali's challenge, which Joe just made up um, and said, let's have them climb, let's have them do 20,000 feet of sort of up and down because that's the height of the Denali mountain. And I think that was a made up sort of ad lib at the end of the race, which was great. Yeah, and previous death, like uh, my 2014, they did, we did something similar, but it was just going up and down. And then that's like an extrapolation, I would say, on that. Well, yeah, because we we had gone up and down probably a dozen times already during the death race, but this was like 11 hours of straight just yeah up just and going down. yeah we had about a seven hour period of just yeah, go go like go 12 like, 12 up and downs whatever to whatever but the the lego challenge was was kind of cool um you weren't required to work with people but quickly we sort of got some people together although there was only two groups that got people together everybody else was doing it individually which is sort of a 
a bad decision. Like there's always strength in numbers, right? You work with the people because you're all trying to remember a pattern or a sign. So our our group, which Anthony was included in, uh, got about six people together. Um, and, and what we realized is there was never a rule that said you, you have to go up and try to answer, um, or you have to try to go up and rebuild it every time that the, that it was just stated that you, you had 30 seconds to look at the Legos at the top. You had to recreate the Legos. If you got the Legos wrong at the top, you did 300 burpees. And then you could come back down and you could try it again. You could try it as many times as you want to. So our group decided we'd take a chance and say, you know what? They never said we have to answer it every time. But so we just went up a little bit, took care of ourselves, got a little shut-eye, then came back down, looked at it again, went up, did the same thing. So we looked at it six or seven times before we ever went up to the top and tried it. Um, and, and we were, and we, and we got it. We were the first group to get it. Um, so, so when you guys were going up, I want to just understand this a little bit better. You guys weren't actually going all the way up to the top. No, no, no. We weren't even going like a 10th of the way to the top. We're just going around the corner, basically just went up enough to find a nice bed of leaves and like get some food and sleep for 15, 20 minutes. Um, oh man, that's freaking brilliant. See, like, and, then that's... We, and then we come back down. And, and the first time we did it was a beta test because we wanted to see if the, if the race leaders knew that we hadn't been to the top yet. Because then they would say something like, oh, you guys hadn't been to the top. And then we would be like, oh, like our bad. Sorry. You know, we, the risk versus reward. Maybe we'd get a little extra attention. Mm-hmm. But how much attention we were going to get for making a seemingly small mistake. Right. And, and, they, and they had no concern. They, they didn't ask us. There, there was no check. And we made it down before anybody else did. So we were the first group. So then we were like, okay. And then we went back up and then we came back and they were like, happy to see us. They were chatting with us. They were like, you guys want to look at the Legos again? Sure. How about our fire? Can we help you with the fire? Sure. We'll help you with the fire. We'll stick around the fire for a little bit. Uh, Rob Barger showed up with a backpack full of Doritos and Oreos. So we took advantage of that. And, nice. and we were probably there three times before the first group even came back the first time, which oh, was man. A dead giveaway correct right <laughs> right right um, because because it was not a short hike up to the top right it was probably an hour yeah a round um, trip is about an hour on that mountain like when you're pretty yeah. fresh even sometimes so, so we 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 said okay this is clearly not an issue we're getting any extra attention over so we'll just keep doing it um so at the end of the day i think we, we took advantage of of the the gray areas and the rules and you know we also knew that, hey, listen, we're probably doing this module for eight hours because, you know, it's the middle of the night and they don't want us making noise. So we're going to be here for a long time. So they probably just want to keep us busy. Um, and we stayed busy, and but we, we were really stress-free. Uh, we enjoyed the time and we solved the challenge. Uh, and our reward for solving the challenge is they said we could hang out and sleep, which That's is awesome. awesome. Cause we were like, so you guys oh. just kept compounding the sleep. <laughs> we were like, oh, thank goodness. We haven't slept in so long. Right. Um, it was great. Uh, so while everybody else was to finish the challenge. We were the first ones. Um, Neil and his group finished theirs right after us, a little bit after us. They had six or seven people who finally, after like four attempts, decided to band up and, and put together. But they tried like six times. So they're doing burpees every time they're going up and down the mountain. After the first three times, I think they said no more burpees. Yeah, that's they a lot of burpees, in, man. They put in so many burpees. Um, and yeah, it was just like, the, the, you know, there's lots of extra work that got done uh, by people and, and that's fine. Um, and then the sun came up and we were nice and refreshed. 
uh, ready to go for the last day. That, the that only, the only thing that almost got us, Clay, was we we almost couldn't make it back to the to Shrek's because we'd been working throughout the night in the dark, and all of a sudden you're like, it's starting to get, it's just before dawn, and so it's just starting to get light out, and we're looking left, we're looking like we we knew we had about a half hour left. We could not find the trail to get back up because the orange markers were not as clear when the sun started to come up. Oh man! So now we're like, now we're starting to get a little. I'm glad we had the glad we had the rest yeah. because we could at least think through the problem. Well, the yeah, the other thing we decided is if we go and try our attempt close enough to the sunrise, there won't be enough time to go back down, and so we'll just do our penalty burpees, but the module will be over. So even if we failed in our attempt, we we plan, but then we almost didn't leave enough time, and so then we we almost like didn't make it um, up to the top <laughs> of the time because we were so relaxed. Oh um, man. Which was sort of a, a, a conundrum we were facing. So we freaked out a little bit, and then we got it there. That's awesome. That sounds like a great challenge and a great strategy for solving it. The Legend of the Death Race podcast is brought to you by Trail Toes, the best anti-blister, anti-chafing cream there is. Trail Toes prevented me from having any blisters after 66 hours at the 2014 Death Race and continues to prevent blisters on all my mountain adventures. Get your jar of Trail Toes today. Use the code THELEGEND on trailtoes.com for 10% off your purchase. So now let's go on the other like end of the spectrum. What was the most difficult thing that you guys faced at this, at this death race? To me, the the most difficult thing was uh, going from the first day to the second day. They paired us off into teams of like 11. Um, After the first night, um, they bring us all into the brown bar and they're like, all right, orienteering challenge. Here's a map with no which way is north or there's no any scale. And it's been <laughs> purposefully um, pixelated so you can't really tell what's going on. And you don't really know what these points are. And they said you had to get, I believe it was like 260 points, but each individual point had its own value. And, you know, at, at that point... Um, they they say okay don't get hit by a moose because they'll kill you if you encounter one and have fun <laughs> so we we got our team of 11 and we just go off and immediately our team of 11 turned into 10 because one of the guys is like i don't know if we can make it and at this point if you're saying that uh less than 24 hours in the race i'm i've just told the guy you should be done like you're you're clearly not ready do not hold us back cuz if you're already having doubts this early in the race, we, we I cannot be held up. But the team wanted to drag him along. And, and fortunately, Michelle Roy, who is, you know, helping out with the race, she's like, eh, he's not actually going because we're not going to go get him from the middle of the woods. So we ended up going along. And the team, I'll never forget, it was a comment where one of the guys goes, I'm not a master rucker like you. Can we slow down? And this was after Don Devaney said, you guys better get going. You have till 11 a.m. or you're cut. And this was a really tough point, but you just you draw a line in the sand. You say, I am going to this point. Give me your cards because you had to get a punch in them. And, you know, like when you get told that, you're like, I I hate you. I don't want to help you, but you're my only path to success. So I ended up hiking up to Bloodroot Gap with one other person on my team, Francis. And, you know, we did the. I think it's like almost a 15 mile hike just to Bloodroot Gap, and then we come back um, and show off our punches, and we had to memorize a poem. 
fortunately, someone on our team had a camera, a digital camera with him. I have no idea why you would bring a digital camera on this race. Like, are we talking like a like a, like a like a pocket like point and shoot or like a DSLR? Like a point and shoot. Okay. But it was one of like but the still. waterproof ones. Like oh, okay, it's a okay. few pounds. I mean, yeah, it's a lot of it's why? weight. Why are you bringing weight? <laughs> no idea. But <laughs> it was very helpful because we ended up taking markers and writing this poem line by line on our arms so we could just read it off and recite it, which we had one transposition error, and we 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 crushed that challenge, but. I tell you what, it was a really tough decision to say I'm done with this team, even though this was considered a team module. Yeah, and yeah, that's hard. And, and and that was it was really difficult day. I mean, we did miles that day. I mean, we had forty some miles, I think, of just hiking, and my feet were hamburger meat by the end of this day because we were in the water all day long. It was I, I almost quit that night, um, and I think it was the night Clay was talking about earlier where. We got a little bit of rest. We got a little bit of, you know, just being smart. And the only reason I was still in that race was because we made the decision to be smart rather than work really hard. Um, and, and it could have been easily, I am done. And, and my headlamp had broke, so this SOS flashing is going on, and I am trees are moving, I'm stumbling into that. It, it was just a bad night. And that all started from that big day on the course with just orienteering. I would have never thought that would have been the thing that just – got me the worst but that truly was it's brutal it's brutal yeah you clay um you know people ask me how was a death race the first thing i say was i had a blast right so there were all the parts sucked right all the parts had parts that sucked but my mindset was for six months was like the more it sucks the more fun i'm gonna have so the more it's something sucked the the more i fondly think about it but i think that the hardest sort of the most like um sort of debilitating part of the race for me was uh shortly after the navigation the teams that made the navigation cut so my team was one of the ones who made the navigation cut then straight from there, we had the opportunity to go back up to the top of Bloodroot Mountain and search for mushrooms. And there was only certain types of mushrooms that, that we could find. And then we had to show those mushrooms. And then we got to go down to do the next part of the event. And every time we – so that was – these were consecutive modules. And every module, they cut half of the people. So half the people got cut from navigation. Half the people got cut uh, at the mushroom challenge. Half the people got cut – uh, making a fire out of their mushrooms. And so they, it went down to 16 people left in the race at that point. And we were only halfway through the race, little wow. less than halfway through the race. So there was a lot of pressure to be in the top 16 people. Um, and the we go up to the mountain. Um, Athena, myself, um, Scotland, John Chambers, and Andrew Blair were the first, first four who got up to the top. Uh, to get the mushrooms. So we're thinking, all right, we know we're the first four. We're in pretty good shape to be in the top 16. And we're just looking through the wilderness for these three types of mushrooms that are, God, uh, impossible to find. Like nobody knows where they are. Unless you got handed a mushroom by some guy wandering around in the wilderness, like Anthony here. (laughs) Anthony got his mushroom handed him by some hippie who found the trail and gave him a mushroom. So, you know, I'm up there like everybody else, and we're just busting our ass hiking up and down Bloodroot Mountain, which is basically a thousand foot mountain, trying to find mushrooms along the trail. Um, and Andrew Blair brought his own bag of mushrooms, which is genius, right? So he just pulls out a mushroom he brought from home. 
okay, now he gets to move on. You know, and awesome. I, so I, you know, me and and John Chambers spent two, three hours hiking up and down a mountain looking for mushrooms that didn't exist. Um, and thankfully, here's another hack, right? My friend Pablo, uh, who we did the Agogi in Iceland uh, together and Mongolia, he comes down and I know that he got his mushroom and he's coming down the mountain. And when you get your mushroom and you come down the mountain, everybody's like, did you get your mushroom? Because they're all freaking out. And you just say no, because you don't want them to attack you and like steal your mushroom. But <laughs> I know he's got his mushroom. So I pull him over to the side. I'm like, dude, man, when nobody else is looking, I said, you got to break me off a little piece, man. You break me off a little piece of his mushroom. He breaks me off a piece that's big enough so I can break it again. So then now John and I have mushrooms. We just go up and hand in our mushroom. Everybody's like, where did you find that? We're like, we don't know. Right. <laughs> Um, but it's just one of those things you do what you have to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and at the end people were going to the mushroom samples, which were the samples that they were showing you what the mushrooms look like. They were just taking the sample and showing them that, Hey, here's a mushroom. And they'd be like, okay, you got it. Good. So like, like it's a thing. It's like thinking outside the box and just really figuring out how to hack it. There, there are probably a dozen people that would still be looking for mushrooms six months later if yeah. they didn't take them. Because some of the mushrooms, they're just unfindable. It was just yeah. ridiculous. Thing. But then, you know, that was sort of the, the most frustrating part is like, I can't believe I bust my ass to get up here to be in the top group and spend two hours looking for mushrooms that don't exist. Um, and some people just get lucky and find them. And it's like, there's no skill yeah. that allows that's you def to. That's definitely a more of a luck. That's a more yeah. luck factor for well, sure, which is yeah. which is rough. So then you, know, you got to train you gotta, for something. Yeah. You want to be able to just perform, and when luck comes in, it's like, oh. So, but it's also strategy and relationships, right? Yes. Um, yes. I knew that there were certain people if they got their mushroom that I could count on my relationship with them to help me out, right? Because I had built those relationships over other events where I did things for them to help them. Now, in this case, I actually felt bad because Pablo gave me the mushroom. I gave it to John. John and I were able to get go down to the thing. John and I built our fire. Pablo got there before us to build his fire, but we built our fire first. So John and I got to move on, and Pablo was one of the first ones who didn't make the cut, even though he was the one who gave us the mushroom to get down. So you do feel bad about these things, but it, it, again, at the end of the day, like Anthony said, you just got to make decisions to like get yourself through. And well, get yeah, yourself and, and some tasks it's easy to help and and and, and to you know, share the responsibility a little bit, but there's some tasks where you can't really step in and help because it's something that they have to do themselves. And yeah. like making a fire, you got to make that yourself. Yeah. So talking about and, mushrooms, I'm just kind of curious. Sorry, go ahead, Anthony. No, the, the mushroom challenge I thought was like the ultimate karma piece to me because like when we were doing blood root, we went up and I, my team was dogging it so hard. I gave my trekking sticks away to people and those same people when we got told go get mushrooms or go to the top of blood root and you'll have a challenge up there. I see the guy with uh, mushrooms. He, this forager, he's this hippie with um, dreads down to his ass. We're like, what is this guy? And he starts pulling these golden reishi mushrooms. I will never forget the name of them. But he pulls one out. And, he, and I was like, do you mind if I try one of those? I've never had one. And he's like, yeah, sure. Take two. And I snag one. And that's when I went up to the top of the mountain. Like, bye. But what was super frustrating with these people that were dogging it the whole way to Bloodroot pass me like immediately hand me my trekking sticks back and then they beat me to the top of the mountain i'm like you know what had you been nice to me i would have given you one but you yeah. know what <laughs> <laughs> you earned this bye and i i went from like mid-pack to three and a half four hours ahead of everyone immediately oh wow 
That's awesome. <laughs> so so talking about all these mushrooms, I'm curious, like, what did you guys eat to sustain yourself throughout this race? What was like some of the go-tos? Um, for for me, it was uh, complete trash. I, I ate just the most comfort food. Um, I actually found a picture of it not too long ago, and highlights include like a whole pack of Reese's peanut butter cups, um, an entire box of Thin Mints, at least a dozen Snickers. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think it's like Sahale or it's like trail mix, uh, really mm-hmm. nutritious trail mix. Um, four peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that were just immediately eaten. I, I was all about um, the taste of the food I'm eating because I've been on, you know, in ulcers and stuff. I've lost my appetite. And when you lose your stomach, it, it you're not getting it back for hours without sitting down, drinking some water and thinking about the horrible decisions you've made on food. So, I, I mean, I, I ate just the worst crap imaginable, and it was just high-calorie, delicious food. And I'll never forget, people were, like, at the end of the race, were like, got any Thin Mints left? Hey, <laughs> what do you, your, your headlamp seems to be down on batteries. What, what do you need for those? And, I, was like, <laughs> and I mean, it was all about um, pacing calories, too, because, like, you know, when we first started the uh, orienteering challenge, I ate a whole sleeve of Thin Mints. That's like 1,400 calories, like just in one slug. <laughs> it's actually quite brilliant. But that's the thing. Yeah. you got to have those good things. Like you said, though, you lose your stomach, and that's the end. Like that's the end of your race. That's the end of everything because it's so hard to get your appetite back once you've lost it. And so, you know, you got to have some of those comfort foods, at least some of them. But to have all of them, that sounds like a good plan, man. <laughs> I can't do chocolate. Chocolate is the one thing that makes me nauseous if, if my heart rate's up. So, like, yeah, I totally agree agree with anthony it's it's all about you have to know what you're what's going to get you excited at certain points so uh, i i had a, a really big sort of variety of things i packed and i packed uh about twenty five thousand calories of food for the event because there's sometimes where you where you're gonna need something sour and sugary to spike and there's other times you're going to need something savory uh and meaty there's other times you're going to need something hearty and like filling and something hot, like you're gonna have your MREs, then you're gonna have your snacks, and you have your candy, then you're gonna have your peanut butter, then you're gonna have your gels that you just. And, and so to me, it was all about having flexibility in the variety. Um, and, and I'm a big stickler in like every hour you're eating something, if not every half an hour, like put a couple hundred calories an hour. I think uh, that's the most and, important tip that anyone has ever given is you have to eat like all the time. This is an eating race. The more you eat, the better you're going to perform, the longer you're going to last. It, yes, yes a- absolutely. So, I mean, I would force myself to. But, yeah, if you have stuff that you like and tastes good, it definitely helps. But it's just the discipline of, you know, every 15, every 20, every half an hour, put something in your body because you, your brain's going to start pulling fuel from other parts of your body that that you need uh and after six seven eight hours you're going to be toast and you're not going to know why so yeah definitely that but anything's got carbs you do need protein because you're you're doing multiple days you can't just carb it out you do have to have i mean i had mres uh with you know barbecue chicken and things like that and every once in a while it's nice to have a hot meal in the middle of the night while you're sleeping in the woods and the leaves uh so it's great for things like that yeah, hot meal can make all the difference in, in your mood and everything. Um, yeah. 
Was there any like sort of thing that was like a favorite that you had? I tell you, the best thing I had was a, a can of Coke. Can uh, of Coke. So now I didn't bring this, but John Chambers and I, in the middle of one of the nights, were hiking up a mountain, and we just see we got our headlamps on. It's pitch black everywhere, and except for where you're looking, we just see this can of Coke sitting in the leaves, and we look. We both look at it and be like, "Is that is that a Coke?" We're like, can't can't be a Coke. Like, what would a Coke be doing out here? And we pick it up, and it's cold. It's like ice cold. And it was it was warm, right? We were in, we it was it was not that cold, but it wasn't ice cold outside. And it's it's opened, but it's cold. And we were just like, this is real. Like, I don't care. I, I'm gonna take the chance. We're just gonna drink it. So I I take the first chug, and I'm like, that is amazing. He takes the second chug, and I take and we finish it off. And we're like. What God just dropped us a fresh can of Coke in the middle of nowhere on a mountain? And we had no idea. And we found out like a day and a half later that that Coke belonged to one of the event leaders who was sitting up in the woods, who opened a Coke and then got a call on his radio and then had to leave and then came back and it was gone. So we, <laughs> we had no idea we drank his Coke, but that was the best thing ever. Because we were that's just, awesome. that's the point where you're like, man, I would do anything for a cheeseburger. Man, I'd do anything for an ice cold Coke. And then it appears. We that's called, awesome. it, called it the Coke from the Mountain God. It was amazing. <laughs> I love it. How about you, Anthony? Did you have something that was like a favorite, those Thin Mints? You know, the Thin Mints were awesome. Those were like the cheap fuel, but it was, it's still like you were dead into the race. And um, I, like 70 hours in, I find a, a a Reese's peanut butter cup in the bottom of my bag, smushed to hell, probably got some, you know, scum juice on it. And oh, I ate the hell out of it. Like, it, <laughs> it was so good because those are like the first to go because those are my favorite. And they were just like Clay said, every hour, you know, and, and it's understanding that I need about 200 calories an hour. It's about what you can process. It's just understanding what you need. And man, when I found that at the bottom, I was like jumping for joy, just eating it in front of people like, ah. You didn't bring this. I did. Delicious. <laughs> there were That's there were lots of people who ran out of food during the race, especially during the last like ten hours. There were people who were all out of food. Oh, they I believe eating, it. Or they were eating things that they didn't want. Mm-hmm. So like, I understand you want to try to stay light, but food to me, especially light food, like little like fruit snacks and like little carbs, like little sour patch kids, that does doesn't take up much space doesn't take up a lot and you can't go shy on it you got to bring twice as much i mean you know be smart about what you pack and the space that it takes up but to me people running out of food that's a huge thing if you have to ration your food at any point in a race like this you're in trouble you need it you need to be you need to have so much food that you can eat every 30 minutes and never run out because you can't ration your food you're going to have huge problems with your energy yeah, and you never know if you're going to have a chance to go back and get more from, like, you know, base camp or anything, or if there even is one at the death oh, race. Because sometimes there's the death race where there is a gearbox, sometimes there isn't. Like, you I need know, to have enough was, food with you to survive. Although, I, I will admit, my, there was a point during the Denali Challenge where uh, Michelle Roy came out with some ham sandwiches that she brought from the kitchen was giving everyone who was oh, there man. between That's great. ham sandwiches, which, which then caused me to think, wait, there's a kitchen over there? Right. So. You know, then I found a coffee pot. So then I was getting fresh coffee in there, and there's some leftover snacks from the from the food. So every once in a while, we were making in between laps up and down Joe's Mountain, we were making side runs into the kitchen 
Nice. Uh, at 3 a.m., finding little morsels of the dinner from the night before. The, the So free free bonus food is always the best tasting food. Yeah, it absolutely most, is. Most free stolen food. <laughs> so so <laughs> we've already talked about you guys, how you made it through without uh, or how you guys stayed awake, I guess. Um, so we're not going to dive into that question too much. We know that you guys got some nice sleep and we're able to hack that system. But I do want to know, did you, either of you guys hallucinate at all? Because it still is a really long race, even with those naps. Do you guys hallucinate at all, or were you guys able to get enough naps that that didn't? Oh, bad. I had. I mean, I had some moments because when I had my headlights short out on me and it was flashing SOS, so three long, three short, three mm-hmm. long, or vice versa. Sorry, I, I, you know, I, I might have known that beforehand, but for two days of the race at night, my headlamp was just flashing over and over and over again. And actually, during the Lego challengers, like. It's just this hilarious video of me trying to build a Lego with flashing light, trying to pick the pieces. Oh man, it, it was it was impossible. So like, I'm trying to grab at stuff that's not there, and now it turns off. And then in between each SOS signal, it's like a different duration than the actual SOS. And I walked into trees. Um, I would <laughs> like fall over things because I think I'm on the trail, and you're not thinking clearly, even with the little bit of sleep that we got, I mean, I was just shot. I mean, trees move is the only thing I can say is that, you know, with you know the night at 2 a.m. in the morning, it's just an awful time because you want it to be light out. And, and that's just the farthest thing that's going to happen. And you're always looking up at the stars trying to be like, all right, is it time yet? Are we getting a little bit? That's a little bit of sun. And then you just start not seeing trees i mean just they were not there earlier and you just walk right into them i mean on more than one occasion i oh man that's rough pile dry <laughs> trees yeah i didn't have any hallucination moments so i feel pretty fortunate about that but it was fun it was fun watching other people go through it as well <laughs> so uh i want to ask did you guys finish yeah yeah if, if you have, yeah, there's there's the skull right in the awesome, video. awesome. Congratulations! And so, the next question is going to be: Do you think it's possible to finish a death race by following all of the rules? No, I do Why not. Believe, I do not believe it because if if you cannot if you cannot um, take advantage of the gray areas in the rules, and if you cannot outthink coloring in between the lines you will not give yourself the advantages that you need to be able to endure this chaos it's purposely designed chaos to 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 make you mentally and physically exhausted if you cannot outsmart outthink um the the the, and not read between the lines then you won't have a good chance of surviving this race And, and i talked to a lot of the uh the race organizers after the event and they confirmed that yeah we want you to to if we give you simple directions we want you to to understand that there's probably five ways to accomplish those and and the fifth way is probably the smartest way if you just take it at face value uh you're going to be working a lot uh harder than you have to to achieve the same result and i think that's part of transformation in life is you have to think wait there's probably a better way a smarter way to accomplish what i'm doing and if you take the moment to do that, it's worth a lot of extra hard work you don't have to do. So I think you can't, if you just color in the lines, you're going to have very low chance of passing a race like this. Yeah, I think that's pretty true. Anthony? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to finish as well. I mean, me and Clay, we, we, and I would say there's a group of about six of us. And, you know, my partner and I, Andrew, we work together just as much as Andrew and I did. I, I, I can't say enough for him. But in, in terms of rules, I think that's an arbitrary word. This race did not have rules. It had guidelines. Yeah. And it, where when people talk about, oh, I raced this within the rules, I, I've heard this on the podcast before. Or I, I didn't go to cheat it. I, I guess I don't know what race you went to. I mean, like, at the end of the day, I did my homework. I read some of the blogs. I watched some of the videos. And I kept my head on my shoulders to try to take advantage of the situations that were at hand. And to say that there were rules in place implies there was a rule book. And if the race directors can change the rules at any given point, I'm going to exploit a rule at any given point. And I don't think that's unfair. I don't think that takes away from my finish. And I, I really do honestly believe that is just as much as part of the game because people get back in the race after they've been put out. Yeah. Days after they're put out. I mean, Eric Hutter, he was allowed, he was going to be put back into that race a full day after he had been put out. And all I can think is, the fact that he didn't was his own choice, but the rule at hand to say that you're out of the race after you've been put out and took a nap is, is that's out the window. That that's not a rule. That's a guide. That's that's just what other people have experienced. That that's not anything. And um, if there's anything this race taught me, being resourceful and understanding your locus of control is everything. What can you control today is is all you can do. And if there isn't things that you can control, don't get mad about them. They're, they're just not. I mean, stop getting huffy about it. Just do it. And um, when I say you, you can't finish the race without cheating, and cheating implies there was a rule to begin with. I mean, yeah, sure, you're not supposed to sleep, but that's like saying you're not supposed to get in a car and get driven to the front of the trail. But there's no rule on that. If you didn't get caught and you didn't get punished for it, was it against the rules? No. no. Do it. Yeah, that's and that's the thing. It's like, um, you know, there's the integrity warriors out there, but like when there's a race that doesn't have a defined start, it doesn't have a defined finish, it doesn't have a rule book. I mean, it really yeah. is. A, it's a matter of risks and rewards. And are you willing to take the risks? And maybe you'll get the reward for taking that risk, or maybe you'll get a punishment, and that punishment might really suck and end your race. But you know, maybe taking that risk ends up making your race that much better and you actually make it through right so i mean life is about balancing risks and rewards uh, if you're an entrepreneur you have to take risks that that you know and they have rewards and they have downsides and you have to manage when is the right time to take a risk and when is a smart time versus a dumb time when, when joe's there saying everybody do burpees let's see and there's 15 set of eyes on you that's not the time to skirt the rules that that's just that's the time to perform Right. Yes. When there's only two people who are running the race on a mountain with you for eight hours in the middle of the dark, you have extra leeway to be smart about how you spend your energy. Right. It's a risk versus reward. That's what life's about. And the the race map of the death race, because there's no map, there's no rules. The race map is just what's going to make everybody go to their breaking point. So, yeah, I mean, there's going to be total chaos. There's going to be rules that contradict each other. One person is going to be telling you to stay with your group. The other person is going to be telling you to dominate your people and beat everybody else who's in your group and leave the week behind. You can't follow all the rules at the same time. It's not possible. Totally 100% agree with both of you on this because, you know, I faced it myself. I faced these decisions myself and 
you know, at the end of the day, you had to make the right decisions to finish your race. So next questions I want to dive into are about courage. Like where did the courage come from to participate in this event? Because it takes a lot of courage to not only sign up, you know, a lot of people, they'll sign up, but they don't show up. They don't start. They don't actually go out there and do it. And so where does that courage come from to not only sign up, but actually show up and go and give it your all? I drive all my support for everything I do um, just by curiosity. I think when we talk about courage, it's it's the willingness to, to do something that is unknown or something so profound you do not think it is possible. And I, I have an unrelenting drive at trying to find those things that, that make me better. And this race was all about that. How do I become a better person? How do I do something that I did not think five years or six years prior that was even remotely in my wheelhouse to, to even mention in the same sentence other than I would never. And um, it was a really important thing. I, I look at this as a defining moment in my life to even sign up, nonetheless finish. So I, I think it, it's that never being satisfied with the status quo. That That is always going to drive me and you know, it's the reason I kind of enjoy training almost as much as I do racing. It's boring. It sucks. But, you know, at the end of the day, it makes me a better person every single day for myself as well as my family. Yeah, for me, it was the mentality of what I was trying to accomplish at the death race was to find my breaking point. So when you set that as your goal, you're not afraid of it. You You're actually welcoming the, the scariness of it, right? I'm not going to find my breaking point if I don't do something that scares me. So yeah, my my fear wasn't of not finishing. My fear was not finding my breaking point or not finding the point where I didn't have anything left to give because that was the goal. But it goes back to sort of why would somebody sign up? You know, I, I don't think Anthony and I, not, neither of us are like world-class gifted athletes who who this comes easy for. We didn't do the death race because we, we thought we had a chance to win it uh, because we're just super strong, super athletic fit people. We did the work to get fit, but we, we did it because we wanted to continuously like push our own limits. This is an every man's type race because there are people who show up who look every bit the part, who are faster and stronger and look ripped and they don't finish. And then there's people who just come because they're looking to like transform themselves and they finish. And some of it's pure luck, sure. Some of it is just the mindset. Um, it's the same with Spartan Race. You get big football players who show up, bodybuilders who look the part, and then they, they can't figure out how to climb up a rope. Yeah. They don't know how to go up and down mountains. Um, you know, I love what I love about this, this whole sport of obstacle course racing or the whole like culture of it is it allows anybody to just sort of step up. Everybody starts at a different place, but it allows everybody to take the next step. And for Anthony and I, this was just the next step in our journey. And for a lot of people listening out there, you know, your next step may be just a 5K or a 10K or it might be a super or a beast or it might be the death race one day. But your next step is the biggest step you're going to take, just like this was our step. I really like that. Um, did you guys gain any wisdom from your dance with death? Uh, without question, um, I what, have a yeah, new. And what is it? Yeah. Uh, without question, I, I think it's a, a new sense of humility on the mental aspect of this race and, and what 
is possible. Um, I, I was always suspicious on when people say this is a mental race, not a physical, because when leading up to that race, it is all physical. It is all about getting in shape and doing things that are hard. But at no point in time was it like, well, if you do quit, you're just done for the day and you're going to start over again, right? But at this race, uh, it, it's the easiest thing you can do is say quit. The easiest thing, absolute easiest thing is say, I'm done. This is horrible. My feet look like they will haunt your dreams if you were to actually draw a picture of them, right? But it was an enduring factor that I find the people who finished were the ones that, regardless of circumstance, had a smile on their face, understood the task at hand, prioritized what was, you know, top to bottom, what was going to get them to the, you know, the hack. And then, you know, they thought through it clearly. They didn't care about all those extraneous factors. And to me, that was a really big deal. And uh, I took a lot away from that. And also, it's astounding how just three days can impact your your life in general, because it was quite a long time before I slept properly again. I mean, it was probably four or five weeks before I could sleep through the night. <laughs> it was you were on death that the mode. truth, man. <laughs> Kind of more comical. I mean, like, you'd have the serious piece, but in all reality, it was you wake up and you're like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom. That would normally not wake me up. That was 100% the case for weeks. <laughs> yeah, I remember waking up in cold sweats after my first death race like, every <laughs> night for a month, just soaking wet and actually thinking I was still on the mountain and just being like, oh, okay, I'm okay. okay I'm going to go back to sleep. Like, for a whole month. <laughs> but yeah, Athena actually had. Um, we were sitting at the race and we, we were done. We had gotten lunch. Joe had bought us lunch and all that. And, um, she wakes me up. We we're on cots cause I had been sleeping and I got up, grabbed my pack, started putting on my shoes and had my two trekking sticks in hand before I realized the race is over. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is we should have we, we should have told you it was still on, and you had <laughs> you probably would have said he would have went up to the top of Shrek's cabin, yeah. but like you said, you got to go get some wood from the top. The, wouldn't even have second guessed it. <laughs> <laughs> so how about how about you, Clay? Uh, any any wisdom that you've gained that you'd want to share? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I did my whole personal transformation of where my breaking zone was, and 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 I'm glad that I that I that I pushed to that limit. But to me, the, the biggest takeaway now in retrospect was sort of a, a, just a real big respect for how much thought, um, planning, and, and even compassion. I'm going to use the word compassion when I talk about how the death race is, is put together, right? Uh, I, I talked to Don about this. I think it takes a tremendous amount of compassion and um, intentionality to design a race like this to really deliver uh, the breaking point for people that come in that are strong. They've done all the hard races already. They need something that's way beyond their comfort zone. And that's not easy to do sometimes when you've got people who are ultra marathoners and triathlons and Ironman champions and, and Olympic athletes. This is the kind of people who come to these races looking for, can you push me to my limit? And, you know, if you talk to the, the race directors of the, of the death race, their goal is to transform people. Um, it's, it's not to kill them. It's not to make them die. It's not to, to belittle them or see them fail. And to, to me, the wisdom I took away is that there is, there's a lot that goes into this. And first and foremost, it's compassion and intentionality. 
And so that I've carried that into my personal life of, you know what, I've got a platform now where I can help people find their breaking point and help them take their next step. But I have to do it with compassion and intentionality. I have to be trying to do it. And then I can put together some of the planning principles that I've learned through the events I've done through great leaders like Rob Barger and, and Jason Barnes and Don Devaney and, uh, and other people that have done events that I've just been in awe of. And I think that's the wisdom I learned in retrospect. And that's the biggest change in me now is after the race, I have a better desire to help people find their breaking point and their next level. That's pretty awesome. Um, so I guess, um, would you do the race again? Would you guys go out again for one more time? Under the right circumstance, at this point in time, I mean, my biggest, uh, you know, thing of not doing it is I don't know how I would do it better. And I know every year is a different race, but I sat and I, I was at the front of the race the whole time. And not that that's the defining thing, but I was always in that lead group. I, I really felt like my preparation was there. I had the right drive. I got what I wanted out of it. I did exactly what I came to do and got so much I could have. Um, I think I would need a different why um, yeah. would be my big thing. And I, I don't have that right now. And that's fine. I, I have goals elsewhere. I want to do, a, I have the go ruck 50 coming up uh, star course and I'm looking at hundred milers. Actually my partner, uh, Andrew Blair and I were, we're thinking about going to do a hundred mile trail loop. Um, every hour on the hour doing like a 4.12 miles. So it's a hundred miler in 24 hours. And oh, nice. It's like, that is, that sounds interesting to me because I've been doing hard races and, you know, ultras and everything else for the last, you know, three or four years, pretty continuously. I'm ready to actually enjoy a Spartan race rather than just do something that is so grueling that I'm out of commission for the next two weeks or more. I mean, the death race yeah. was a month, you know, yeah. yeah. I, not to take a step back, but, you know, let's explore other things. Ultra running is not something I've ever been good at. I think my farthest run was a 13-miler when I lived in Erie, Pennsylvania, and I walked it um, because I was forced to do it. So I took dead last out of, like, 13,000 people um, just out of principle. But, I, I, like, but I, I'm looking to kind of get in that space and, and maybe do something a little different. If there was a different why, I think absolutely. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll agree on a couple points with Anthony. One is, yeah, um, I don't know that I would do it any better. Uh, the why is important. I feel like I accomplished my why. Uh, I have a different why now after the death race than I had before it, which I hope is the goal that everybody who does the death race would have a different why after. It. Because if you do this event right, and I, and I mean if you push to your breaking limit, finish or not, if you do this event right, you will have a different why afterwards. And then you've got to act on that why. Um, it, it was great. I was up in that group with, with Anthony. I think there was only um, six or eight people who never got cut. Uh, there were finishers who did get cut, who got back in the race. That's a whole nother thing. And, and they deserve to finish. But there was a group who never got cut uh, who, and who made every single um, hack that was given no matter how crazy it was and they made every demand uh, including getting uh, 11 laps of Denali which I think there was only four or five people who got the 11 laps so yeah, I guess it's, it's it's a smaller group than that that, that actually did everything um, but 
you know, to me, it's that my why was accomplished there, and then I have a new why, and so that's like Anthony said is is important. Um, I I will be at the death race this year, but I won't be participating. I'll be there to support to help other people, you know, figure out the chaos and maybe cause a little chaos if they let me. Oh, uh, there you go. But you know, I, I'm I'm off to try some new challenges, right? Uh, the Killington Ultra. I'm going to be doing age group competition. I've got a time goal. I've got a place goal in mind. Uh, and I think next year it'll be my first hundred mile race. Um, starting to train for that. So maybe, Do you know, what's one you're going to go for? No, but I think the blood route hundred mile ultra probably oh, there's a blood route hundred. Uh, oh, that's, that's right. That's, it's the peak one. They, they rebranded it. Right. Yeah. Right, the, right. the peak, but I think that's a natural fit cause I, it's within Spartans family. I already know the system. I know the people mm-hmm. It's probably, uh, we're, Anthony and I are going up to the snowshoe, the snow devil race, but we're we're sure. only doing, we're only doing a half marathon there because we've never done anything like that before. And you know, uh, but if you, you want to if you want to do like a whole world of uh, elevation suck, come on out here to the Pacific Northwest and take on the Cascade Crest 100. Uh, yeah. That's what I, that's actually what I did last year. Twenty three thousand elevation gain, hundred miles. That's insane. It's an ass whooping. <laughs> that, is, that is. So, you know, I start to get into that. And, and maybe that's just a one and done for me. Maybe it's something that I'll love and I want to do more often. But to me, you know, once a year, I want to do something that scares me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to give that up. I don't know if I need to continue escalating my scares every year. Like, I don't, after the death race, I don't know what scares me more. And then if I do that, I don't know what's above that. But to me, to scare yourself at least once a year, is sort of something that's just necessary to maintain. You got to have something that scares you, that will get you excited about doing it, training for it. Well, yeah, and when we do stuff that scares us, um, it rewires our brains. It helps us. It, it it does a lot actually for us. It's really really beneficial. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you guys have some good plans coming up. Um, so next couple questions are, you know, do you guys have any books that you would recommend to get in the right headspace for these types of events and for death races and preparing, uh, whether physically or mentally, um, anything you recommend? My, my big, uh, I think, uh, and I, and I went back actually to it, I've read it twice, but if there's anything, the first chapter of Joe's book, Spartan Up, it gets okay. you the mindset of the creator. Mm-hmm. What is he trying to get at? And I thought, I found that you can see some patterns in the chaos and, you know, I've always had a pretty good head for numbers, but you actually begin to see how that book translated to actual life. And Mm -hmm. at the race, you're like, Oh, here it comes. Like here's something stupid or here's this. And it encourages that hack that Clay and I so aptly just, just clung onto throughout the race of how do I push the limit? And he even goes on to talk about people riding a bike because they could, and they were ahead of the pack. I mean, I just, in my eyes, at least the opening chapter of Spartan Up was so relevant to the race, and I took so much from it that I think it's a must-read for anybody that you're just not going to get it any better than the source. He's the one who created it, him and Andy, and I think, in my eyes, it's a really important you know, piece of literature when it comes to, you know, what is the purpose of it? Because he gets into that purpose. What is his goal for you? That's a good one. Um, My book goes uh, way back and it's totally not Spartan or even either or even athletic uh, related. And it's Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, I talked about it a little bit. 
it's just sort of the building blocks of uh, understanding in every situation um, the people around you and what do they need and what are they looking for and what do you have to offer, right? So to me, a large part of, of surviving events like this is properly reading the situation around you, understanding where are the opportunities to connect, to collaborate, to win. Um, and to me, a lot of this event is about that, reading the other people in the event, understanding who's strong for what, who's good for what, who can help who, how can you help other people, how can they help you? Because it is an individual race, but it is always a team race because you're always with other people. It and really those is. other people can help you, they can hurt you, they can build you up, they can tear you down. Uh, there's You're constantly surrounded by by the aspect of other people. And what you do with those other people is mostly up to you. Um, there's not a lot of rules about what you can and cannot do with other people by purpose because they want to see how you use your, your interpersonal skills. So I, to me, How to Win Friends and Influence People was, was a, a book that I thought about a lot on a race like this because it, it's, it's vital to the survival. Yeah, I mean, I think the true words haven't been spoken. It's, it's, you, you have to rely on the relationships and the friendships and the partnerships that you can create during the race or even before. You know, um, they they play such a critical role in the success of you and anyone else that's going to succeed. And without them, I mean, if you try to go in it as a lone wolf, I don't think. I mean, there's people who are strong enough and powerful enough. Sure, there's a, there are a handful. But the vast majority of the people who go after it, if they just try to go as a lone wolf, they're probably not going to make it. Yeah. So many of the, of the things that, that went well in the death race started with a scanning of some of the people around who were going to think and perform like I, like I was. You know, connecting thoughts on, hey, I see Anthony over there. He looks at me. I look at uh, Andrew Blair. I look at John Chambers. I look at Andrew Malcolm. I look at some of those. And we sort of get on the same wave, wavelength pretty quick, have a quick conversation, and then have a plan of action, and we're all supporting each other. Yeah, um, absolutely. So many of, the, of our challenges went well because we, we quickly learned how to work together to achieve a goal. And not, not everybody in those groups made it to the finish, but it, it's different points of time. We all helped each other. Fantastic recommendations there. So uh, I want to thank you guys both for being on the podcast. It's been awesome. Um, this is a great opportunity right now for you to, if you want anyone to follow you, um, see more of your stories and, and more of your adventures. Uh, there's a chance to share those, those places. Anthony, you got to start like an Instagram page with you and your like bathing suit or something. <laughs> People can check you out. Oh my God. I don't do any of the Instagram. I do. I'm, I'm on all the forums for Facebook. Um, if anybody, I take a great pride in actually the day after the race. Um, I, I wrote down my experiences and I've actually left it pretty much untouched. Um, if anybody wants to read it, it's kind of that. And you're going to see how horrible the grammar is even a day after the race. It's kind of comical how bad your brain was <laughs> even 24 hours post. So, you know, you know, see Anthony Sinopoli, it's I'm on all the ultra pages. I don't do the Instagram. It's just a little bit before my time. <laughs> Dude, you got to send me your notes. I want to see how how those uh, contradict or confirm the memories that I have, because it's half of your notes are probably hallucinated notes, too. <laughs> things, things that never happened maybe um 
I do have uh, Instagram elevate OCR. That's elevate as such elevate a mountain OCR. Uh, and I have Facebook page elevate OCR. Uh, and that's a, a program that I started after the death race uh, that aligned with my new why of, of jumping on sort of the mission of changing lives by getting people uncomfortable. So the mission of, of that group, which I started as, as like a side group, uh, is to train people to be more comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, it's based in obstacle course racing. We have some gyms that we work with. Uh, we just get out and do uncomfortable things. Uh, and I think that people really just need a guide to tell them it's okay to be comfortable. You should actually seek being uncomfortable. It does amazing things in your lives because we live in a world where everybody, every product, every service, every technology innovation is trying to make our lives more and more comfortable. And it's taking us away from what we were built to do. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think that's why we do these things, right? <laughs> so that way we can become better, better versions of ourselves because when we get comfortable, we become complacent. And when we get uncomfortable, that's when we grow. So thank you both for being on the show. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And stay tuned for more legends from past Death Racers. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review. This really helps the podcast move up the rankings so we can reach even more humans. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if you find you really enjoy what we're doing, consider becoming a sustaining member by clicking the link in the show notes. Just a quick reminder, my legend, The Legend of the Death Race book, is now available. Visit legendofthedeathrace.com book to order your copy today. Thank you again for tuning in. If you'd like to stay up to date on my current adventures and training, you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook. Just search the handle at thatenduranceguy or visit thatenduranceguy.com. We'll see you next time on the Legend of the Death Race podcast. Now go create your own legend.